Hello and welcome to this discussion of brand new book, Beyond the Grievance, with its author, Dr. Rakib Assam. Rakib, thanks very much for sending the book in and, and thanks for chatting with me today. No, Connor, my pleasure. Really looking forward to the conversation. Yes, well, uh, as as the resident, what was it, Tandoori Mosley? Um, Tandoori Mosley, personal favourite Bangalore-Saxon, mate. <laughs> why don't you explain to the audience what the impetus was for writing this book and how it has been received so far? No, absolutely. I appreciate that. I think that in terms of the book, what I really wanted to do, Connor, I think there's many, what I'd consider to be liberal left narratives uh, surrounding the life of ethnic and racial minorities in the UK. I consider it to be overly doom and gloom. Uh, I traditionally associate myself with the political left, lived pretty much all my life in Luton, which is a traditionally Labour voting town. Uh, one of the first things I did when I got into work was join a trade union. Uh, but I think that the left has really lost its way in recent times, and no doubt we'll, we'll delve into those various dynamics. And, and I think that one of the things I really wanted to do with the book is challenge these white privilege theories um, which are being brainlessly imported into the UK and say, well, actually, hang on, if you look at certain social and economic metrics, uh, there's non-white groups which are actually outperforming the white British mainstream. So if we're talking about why these disparities exist, we have to be very honest. This isn't automatically a result of racial discrimination. So in the book, I talk a lot about family structure, the importance of community norms, and potentially more boring factors such as geographic isolation. But these are very important factors if you want to understand what's holding back people from fulfilling their potential in modern Britain. So I think those were the key things I really want to achieve with this book. Yeah, so I, I am quite interested because right before we, we came on air, you were talking about the fact that the BBC has been very receptive mm. and allowed you a platform to discuss it. As you said, you came from a left wing background, so I think we're going to have some, some philosophical contentions here. But within your book, how representative is your view versus the view that you would call the disparity equals discrimination paradigm? represented in the Labour Party, in the broader British left, both the, the patriotic and the very racially animated one that we're seeing at the moment? Well, I, th I think racially animated is a fantastic description. I think in, in, with that particular section of the contemporary British left, I think that disparities equals discrimination paradigm is still alive, um, in my view. And I think in, in, in some elements, it's actually, that thinking is actually very aggressive um, when it comes to thinking on uh, social policy. But when you talk about the more patriotic elements of the left, uh, these elements I, I feel that I belong to, uh, along with the likes of Paul Embury, for example. So people who are associated and linked with the blue Labour tendency. Uh, I, I think there's a very clear understanding that there needs to be a very serious pushback to a lot of this toxic racial identity politics, much of it American inspired. Uh, but I think that more generally, when you're looking at the Labour Party, I still think that the wider party infrastructure has a lot to learn in terms of understanding the more traditional attitudes within racial and ethnic minorities. And more broadly, the inequalities that exist in modern Britain, why do they exist? And I think that if you look at those disparities through the prism of race, I really do think that you're missing the wider picture. Yeah, so we've we've... Blue Labour, I keep hearing this, this term banded about, but as you document in the book, they're not the dominant voice at the moment, mm. and I can, I can quibble with them about 
materialistic tax policies and redistribution all they like. But I, I can see, at least in the spirit of someone like Matthew Goodwin, who describes himself as economically left but culturally conservative, mm. we, we want the same project. But then when you have figures like Naz Shah, who, who still hasn't lost mm. her position of prominence in the party when she retweeted the Owen Jones parody account of white girls should shut their mouths for the sake of diversity mm. if they were, they were victims of grooming gangs. What, why do you think that that racially animated constituency has such pull, such weight within the Labour Party as they're approaching a general election, it looks like they're going to win. Well, I think that when you're looking at that racially animated brigade, uh, you could say, I, I, th I think that there is a tendency here to frame racial victimisation along a non-white versus white basis. And I think that's deeply divisive. Um, in my view, uh, something that a uh, point that I make in the book, actually, Connor, is that there are tension, the very real tensions between and within um, ethnic minority communities. And I'm sure that's something we'll discuss later on, considering today is actually the one year anniversary of the beginning of the Leicester disorders uh, last year. I, I also feel that there are certain things that have happened within our country that the left are quite frankly very uncomfortable with recognising. Um, as, as there's various cases of group-based child sexual abuse where the perpetrators have been predominant have been non-white men, quite often of Pakistani heritage, and the victims have been white, underage, vulnerable, working class girls. So even if you want to talk about racism and then you, if people want to pontificate about power dynamics, it's very clear where the power dynamics lied in those in those particular cases. And what you saw, you saw public institutions, and this is something that the left really needs to tackle, especially if Labour gets back into government. We have far too many public sector officials, Connor. They're far more interested in pandering to ra racial sensitivities, maintaining a culture of political um, correctness, in my view at times even indulging in victim blaming tendencies, when really what they should be prioritising is their duty of care, their duty of care. And quite often they prioritise their organisational and personal reputations over protecting the very most vulnerable in society. And that really needs to change. Yeah, you, you wrote about, I believe it was today, an unheard piece on the Leicester riots that happened mm. last year. What, what's your read on the factors of why that, that came about? And, and why were there no consequences for that? Why, why was there barely anyone cracked down on? Why did the politicians not have any kind of reckoning for allowing this to happen in their constituency? I think that there's a there's a real shortage in moral and political leadership uh, in modern Britain, if truth be told, Connor. I think the Leicester disorders, that was very much a watershed moment for British community relations. Uh, the Leicester traditionally has been seen by some people in my field of social cohesion as a paragon of British multiculturalism. And, and that actually remained, even though we had the sweatshop scandals, which I'm sure you're aware of, that, 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 that preceded the um, disorders. But I think what we're seeing in certain parts of the UK, we're seeing this importation of subcontinental style sectarianism. And I think that's going to worry people because people are going to feel that how are these tensions? How are we going to reconcile them? Are they indeed irreconcilable? Um, I'm naturally an optimistic and hopeful person. Uh, that, that's very much at the core of my personality and my approach to life. But I am very seriously concerned, especially in parts of Leicester where you have the local universities before the disorders. Um, one of the local universities was looking to um, set a collection of workshops championing immigration-related diversity uh, in the city. 
which is quite remarkable. And what we've seen recently, one of the local universities is now taking on this rural racism project, um, analysing so-called bigotry in the English countryside, when they've got very real communal tensions on their very doorstep. So I think that there's many issues in Leicester. Um, and what's very interesting, and something that I hopefully we'll discuss in more detail, is that it's first-generation migrants in Leicester who are quite critical of the attitudes and behaviours of new arrivals, especially those from the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, so what, what, why do you think that divide is the, between the first generations who import their ethno-religious tensions over and the people that feel that they are invested more in the time, place, culture maybe to an extent, but the, as well as the economic conditions which are deteriorating in mm. Britain? Why is there the divide between the more... Um, uh, patriotically inclined constituencies, as you write about in your book, that the faith mm. and family first ones, and the types like Mohammed Hijab who will go out and just write in the street. What, what's the discord there? Yeah, I, mean, I think that this is something that what we're seeing here um, is, is significant intergenerational tensions. And I think one of the big problems in Leicester as well is that there's been a breakdown of the relationship between traditional faith-based authority and younger British-born um, generations. Uh, belonging to religious minorities in places uh, such as Leicester. And that's left a vacuum, Connor, which I think social media personalities, who in my view are religious hardliners, um, they're exploiting that vacuum. And that, that does pose a serious threat to social cohesion in places uh, such as Leicester. I also feel that when you're looking at the first generation migrants, many of them, when they were moving to the UK, Connor, it wasn't so much they were relocating to a foreign country, some of them actually genuinely felt that they were that they were moving to the mother of the empire, in a sense. You had families that had associations with and linkages with um, the, the British Indian Army, for example, which ended up being the largest ever volunteer force um, over the course of the Second World War. Uh, you also have families which had links with the Merchant Navy. So I think there you had people who had a naturally positive orientation towards the crown and towards the British state. And quite frankly, they were originating from parts of the world that were relatively unstable. And many first generation migrants in the UK have fled civil unrest in their homelands. So naturally they have a positive orientation towards the relative stability and prosperity of British democracy. What we have is that we have British born migrants who may have a very different frame of reference. Their frame of reference may be, may be more exclusively British, uh, you could say, so that they may all have very different expectations in terms of the rights and protections that they think they deserve under British democracy. So I do think we do have those intergenerational tensions there, which are quite often overlooked. So that deracinated sense of being dislocated from time, place, heritage, that some of those children of the immigrants that have grown up in Britain and taken it for granted have. Do you think that's been inflamed by the racial grievance mongering from the post-colonial studies departments, from the BLM import from America, which frustratingly, I'm, I'm sure for you, I mean, again, not a Labour man, but to see Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner taking the knee, they're, they're definitely taking that one side of that narrative. I can't imagine it's making it much better. Well, uh, mate, as you know, I refer to that photo as extremely cringeworthy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but I also felt that it was, it was a crying shame that you saw the leader of the Labour Party and the deputy leader taking the knee for a movement which I thought was deeply racially divisive from the get-go. Um, now it's a movement which has been thoroughly discredited. 
It's been struck by a variety of um, corruption-related scandals in the United States. But, but crucially, Connor, if people want to talk about anti-racist politics, it has to be respectful of Britain's heritage and history. And I think that if you're going to brainlessly import the cultural politics in the United States into the UK, you're going to run into some very significant problems. Uh, I found it quite remarkable to see British BLM protesters chanting, don't shoot, at British police officers, the vast majority of whom are unarmed, and actually support that model of policing. If you call it an industry, they support that model of policing, Connor. And, and, and I think the US, it's a country, in my view, it's a relatively youthful experiment. I still think it's, it's, it's struggling to get to grips with the legacy of slavery and segregation. Uh, we had um, cases such as Bamber Bridge. I'm not sure how many people are familiar uh, with that, but I think that would be such an important history lesson in schools across the country, where you had American commanders looking to enforce racial segregation in the Lancastrian village. Uh, and, and the pub landlords are saying, no, hang on, we don't, we don't have that in Britain we're not going to accept that. So I think that it shows that how advanced we are when it comes to race relations compared to the United States. And I think the one thing that I really call for in my book is that we really need to end our slavish fascination with racial politics in the US. So why have the Labour Party, most of the, the left and most so-called neutral institutions been mm. captured by this critical race theory, racial grievance ideology. Is it what Doug Stokes, who I've, I've spoken to, calls the grievance industrial mm. complex of just there's so much money behind these NGOs that they have a lot more power? Or do these people at the top genuinely believe this ideological hogwash? I, th I think it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of various factors, Connor. I think that there's no doubt that there's a, there's a great deal of money to be had um, it, it, when it comes to exploiting racial grievance. And I, and I do think that we uh, have a grievance industrial complex, which its it, it sole focus, its central focus, you could say, is placing race at the forefront of very complex debates on disadvantage and privilege. Uh, I, I've often made the point that, in my view, the most beneficial privilege a young British person can have, irrespective of their background, is belonging to a stable and loving family unit. And, and I make um, how do you say, I make no apologies for making this point that, in my view, conventional stability, uh, family stability is defined by having a married heterosexual couple at the helm, mm. in, in my view. And what's also helpful if you have strong intergenerational cohesion. So if you have loving grandparents involved um, and maybe uncles and aunties as well, I think that a, a stable family network like that can be of such immense value when it comes to a young person's um, progress and development. Now, what we have there, the grievance industrial complex, they don't want to talk about family structure at all. And I suspect one of the main reasons for that is when you look at certain ethnic minority groups, Connor, take for example, um, communities of black Caribbean heritage. Now, if you look at the stats for children aged up to 15 years, and people can check this on the Office for National Statistics, which, as you know, is a very highly respected source of data, 63% of black Caribbean origin children are living in lone parent households. It drops down to 19% for the white British mainstream, which in my view is still quite high, one in five, but it drops all the way down to 6% for their peers of Indian heritage 
which also shows how ridiculous the BAME acronym is and labels such as non-white. But I think that what we really need to discuss here, and you talked about the BLM movement, if we care about young black British lives in our inner cities, we'll talk more about the fatherlessness epidemic, which blights those areas. Otherwise, in my view, you're a bad faith actor, in my opinion, if you want to overlook that. Yeah, that's that brings me back again to the Labour Party then, because you don't hear any of this pro-family messaging coming out of them. You might see Union mm. Drac draped behind Keir Starmer while he's giving a speech, but you know there was that there was that uh, leak from the inside saying that's a conscious effort to position himself to be more patriotic mm. under the guise of Tony Blair, despite his policies not really changing. And one of the starkest contrasts to that is David Lammy. About 10, 15 years ago, he was talking about how the knife crime epidemic was because of black Absolutely. fatherlessness. Ever since BLM, and he's found that there's more money in the game, he's now jumped ship to say it's this nebulous systemic racism. Whiteness is just pushing these machetes from one black hand into one black heart, unfortunately. So why do you think the Labour Party aren't hitting on the on the family message. They're not listening to you. And I, I see a lot in your book, a kind of effort to steward the left wing more towards the patriotic side. Do you think it's viable when the, the latent Marxist element that's still there, even after Corbyn's gone, even after the, the guy you found deeply patronising in your Daily Mail uh, article has, has been extinguished, uh, they are axiomatically against the nuclear family. So how fertile do you think that soil is for them to actually listen to you? I think it's going to be hard work, Connor. But <laughs> God loves a trier, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to crack on. But I think it's a very serious problem. And I think that it, it, the reality is, when you're looking at social and economic disparities, some of the deepest rooted problems are not in our systems, but internal community norms. So I also talk about the book that I don't want to over romanticize traditional South Asian family structures, especially Bangladeshi and Pakistani origin communities. Uh, many people talk about the relatively high levels of female unemployment and economic um, inactivity in particular communities. And that simply can't be down to anti-Muslim prejudice in the labor market. That, that would just be empirically false. So you also have to look at you know, what are the kind of um, gender norms in particular communities have to talk about female empowerment? These are all very important debates to be had. What you have um, on the left are what I call glamour feminists. They're, they're obsessed with female representation in corporate boardrooms. They promote all women shortlists for parliamentary elections. When it comes to the nitty gritty of problematic attitudes towards women's rights, especially in more segregated communities, closed off communities in our country, they're nowhere to be seen. And I think when you're looking at, you know, the absence of pro-family messaging, or actually saying that, well, some of the things which are really holding back communities are things such as family instability, materialistic individualism. I think there's a real absence of leadership uh, on the left. And I think that that's increasingly because you have many politicians who, ultimately are obsessed with trying to be too caring in my view they don't they're they're incredibly frightened to offend people in any way shape or form and i think that really needs to change because if you're very serious about equality of opportunity and being on the left if you're serious about young people fulfilling their potential you cannot ignore the importance of family and community in this context See, here's, here's where I think we might get into a, a bit of a philosophical discord, right? So in there, I can see um, good intentions and I think perhaps a counterforce that might be competing in, in, in your aims. And that is, I would see 
the post-industrial economy, the drive to conscript everyone into the workforce, um, not from the suppression of some Pakistani, Bangladeshi, um, mm. fundamentalist Muslim communities that say that women are subordinate, but from mm. the idea that stay-at-home motherhood is a virtue to be lionised. I think that that's mm. something that should be ring-fenced from market participation. Not everyone should have to work. Mm. You should be able to have um, single-income families. And I'm really not hearing that from the neoliberalism or even the Marxism of the Labour mm. left. And then certainly not, as you point out in your book, and we share this criticism, the Conservative Party, bar Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger, are fundamentally just talking about GDP, line go up. If we move people around like beads on an abacus, everything will be somewhat better. So do you not see those forces as in conflict? Do you not see that the, the female financial empowerment, a form of empowerment which is mm. traditionally male, as in conflict with the family mm. unit? Well, I think that when it comes to those discussions about female empowerment, and if you're looking at female economic inactivity, I think that there has to be a debate that there are women who have made that choice and they are actually comfortable with that choice of ultimately prioritizing motherhood and maybe for a certain period of time not being involved in the labor market um at all for an amount of time and, and i think that what we want we want to see at least those women also being represented in our politics and i think that what often you have women who prioritize it that way they're vilified they're almost seen as holding back the modern feminist cause and i don't think that's right at all and in my view i have very i have my view traditionally that a man's responsibility is for his wife and children that 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 is my view and i think that when it comes to um parties, you know, the caring, nurturing, being in the household and raising children. I, I don't think that is let the feminist cause. It might actually a very important duty. Uh, what I was referring to there are more extreme behaviours. And I think these are things that have no when it comes to honour-based violence. Um, I think that those are the kind of things I've also touched on the book, practices such as is female mutilation um, and there's still issues um, in this country and I think my point there is that modern feminists don't seem to be very keen those issues perhaps our fear of being accused of being racist or uh, Islamophobic so I think that there are tensions there within um, the contemporary British left but what I really want to see is that there's a there's a there's a greater sense of understanding that if a woman decides that her primary responsibility for a certain period of time is to stay at home and to raise her young children, she's not letting down the feminist cause. And actually, she's fulfilling a very important social function as a woman. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.